Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. One of the things I was pondering during this pandemic, of the many I've pondered. Oh, you uh, learned that word. <laughs> ah, little Obi-Wan. <laughs> I didn't even have to think about inserting it here. It just came to me. Unbelievable. Um, no, we talked many times about church, meaningful repetition, all of those pieces. And I was thinking about how you know we've shifted so much to the online world. And there's there's a lot of conversation with churches. My church even was never online before, and, and they are online now. But it made me think, man, older traditions, uh, in older traditions, this would make no sense. You know, it almost exposes today uh, how how our left brain element takes us to say, "Oh yeah, church could be the same online. You could just watch the service." And I was I was thinking about how, man, that just makes no sense if the core piece of your service is something like the Eucharist, for example. You you just can't do that online, and so it it made me kind of ponder about wow how is this going to shift uh church services but also just uh, further our understanding of the faith or, or lack thereof when it comes to why do we need to be in person i mean it, it follows the trend of the church is not a building and i i used to totally be on board with all of that until our conversation started to shift me to oh wow there's there's actually value in the building there there actually is it's not this temple but there's there's tremendous value in the building and there's tremendous value in the the traditions within the service and within the physical space but i wonder how much of that is lost so I, i'm just curious your take on some of that yeah that's a you know good questions plural um and so for listeners, yeah, we're going to see if we can go down the rabbit hole a bit on this because um to sort of round off a bit of what you said, um, uh, I think every church recognizes something is lost, um, but it mostly works down to we can't be together in person, which is valid. That That's an important mm -hmm. part, no, no doubt. And I remember the first time that I began to uh, learn of churches that were doing online services. Uh, there was a story in, uh, might have been the Atlantic, but... It was this uh, guy who's in his PJs. He's somewhere in the Northeast, but his church is in Houston. And uh, now this was a little over the top. That church is actually, you could make your own uh, avatar and uh, <laughs> be in the service. But, you know, I just go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, um, again, I hearken back to, for listeners, if you've not tried to wade through Jacques Ellul, who way back in the 60s wrote the Technological Society and said, here are the questions that you have to address. 
in American society, Americans are looking, they only think of what's the answer. How do you do this? They don't say, what would be the good questions to ask before we delve into this or before we dive headfirst into it? And then Neil Postman's book, Technopoly, because he makes a comment along the way. It's not about church and it's before internet, but it is once you're in a technopoly where technology monopolizes our thought, we don't ask the right questions. And so he even says early on in the book, what will this do and how we imagine God, church, faith? And I have yet to meet first a clergyman, clergywoman, who's read those books, and second, carefully considered them. Now, COVID presented a, a sort of an unprecedented challenge. It, it really forced everybody out of the physical church. But believe it or not, Pat, it was of all places a week before Easter that The Economist hit the nail on the head on what is lost. And I thought, Give it, leave it to a Babylonian mm. to come up with the answer. Or I think anyway, is the thoughtful, here's what's lost. And I, you know, I bet a fair amount of money, you'd never guess what they said is lost. You got me. Well, and it's because uh, they use a word that I think, oh my goodness, <laughs> they're quoting Augustine, they're, call, they're quoting Aquinas, they're quoting, uh, and you go, the economist remembers this kind of language. So, um, so let's dive into it a bit. Here's, um, I'll read with The Economist. Um, and by the way, so the article is basically about with Easter coming up, uh, churches online have had to make that shift and the online services. And they, and they note that um, those that can, I'm going to put my language on it, but uh, jazz it up enough or create enough for the um, uh, entertainment value, so to say, mm. uh, draw particularly well. And those who are more rich in thick liturgies, not so much. Mm. And here's why. So if you're ready, I want to just quote, because it's worth it. When, Go for it. They say first, so the magazine writes, and they say, much like a white CEO, <laughs> they say, God does not work well over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> but here's why. The ineffable is lost. Now, first of all, I'm thinking, how many readers know what they mean uh, by that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, where we have to give credit is The Economist. I really do think uh, is embodies the... Uh, today's Babylonian world and why the church is in exile inside this Babylonian world. Um, the Economist has uh, actually very good writers, succinct articles. They don't pile on words like the average sermon does. Uh, I'm actually working with some pastors, preachers right now, and I urge them to subscribe to The Economist and learn about economy of language which, by the way, you read in Scripture, 
that when you come into the presence of God, therefore let your words be few. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly because the thrust of Lucifer's work is to break the meaningful connection between words and reality. Yep. The more we pile on layers of words, the more we run the risk. That's why I urge readers, by the way, to read Paralandra. Because it's just the piling on, the piling on, the piling out of words to try to wear down the green lady so she eventually doesn't see what she's about to lose. So the economist hits the nail on the head in four simple words. The ineffable is lost. So ineffable, pet means indescribable, inexpressible. We see it, for example, in Augustine, where he wrote, if you can understand it, it's not God. That, that hits hard. <laughs> that my, and in so many ways, my motivating factor in growing up in my faith was, was trying to explain it clearly, and, uh, and particularly when it comes to others and combating the mystical elements of the faith. And yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I get it. And a lot of it is rooted in um, uh, a, a simple call algorithm, if you want. Um, God is infinite. We are finite. The degree of infinite, the degree of difference between if infinite and finite is infinite, infinite. And so. Um, We have instances, the Apostle Paul, shortly after his conversion, is taken up to the third heaven, much like Dante's Inferno. He peers into heaven and he hears words that he says are inexpressible and he's not allowed to speak. Hmm. As a group of young people uh, yesterday morning, Yes, this, these early morning things are becoming a habit. And, uh, and my daughter Jennifer uh, is struck by this, and she's been pondering, and she reads from Romans 11, the inexpressible and unfathomableness of God. He is ineffable. The very language that the church uses all the way up through the Enlightenment. And what this means when, in terms of indescribable, Pat, why it's indescribable over Zoom is that, first of all, you're watching a service either on your phone, some sort of screen, but the frame, non-consciously, is framing the faith. That frame of your iPad, the frame of your laptop. And that frame is nowhere near the immensity of God. Nowhere near. You know, it's, it's actually, it's kind of fascinating because it, not much has changed for many churches in terms of the worship, the sermon. And it's, it's almost as if the, the, 
just framing it in, like you said, an iPad, a laptop actually almost exposes the shortcomings of this enlightenment based faith because it's, it's so easily frameable in that device. Bingo. Hmm. Wow. That's wild. I call it lamentable. It's a better word. It is wow. Um, but that's where it should start with a, uh, oh, wow. is, um, and, and this is where I think McGilchrist, in his book, The Master and His Emissary, gets it well. You feel something that also is ineffable. You just, you just feel like, oh, wow. And then someone goes, wow, what, what are you go, ah, uh, uh, something ain't right here. Mm. It is what also we know the right, those who bias the right brain, very small percentage of the population, they're highly intuitive. And intuition is imaginative, but not given immediately to language. And so you just go, I'm reminded of the old Buffalo Springfield song, Stephen Stills, something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. God bless good old rock and roll, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Born in 1954, blossomed in the 60s. <laughs> best music, 1969. Okay, let's set all that aside. <laughs> uh, so I can go back to whenever it was, I was in a rather large church. So they put the preacher on the big screen. Mm. And I just remember thinking, something's happening here what it is ain't exactly clear but this is off so to your point pat yeah so that transfers rather easily to the screen in front of you yeah easy to turn off easy to, well it's I mean, easy to put the pastor on the big screen yeah. Oh, on yeah. Your screen, sure. On your phone, yeah. I noticed in the more well, we're just going to call pre-enlightenment. So if you if you were to turn on an Orthodox, if you were to turn on an Episcopal, an Anglican, a Celtic, uh, um, Catholic, you see the uh, you see it's a wide sweep of the altar and the uh, perhaps the nave and so on and so forth. Um, and that's what the economist is getting at is even that doesn't capture the feeling and the architecture of the soaring immensity of God, the yeah. indescribable. Yeah. It's almost like I can watch a, a good sermon. If that's the focus, maybe a more modern enlightenment based, I can watch that online and be like, ah, oh, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Got, That's right. got a lot out of that. You can watch a more traditional, uh, like you said, more orthodox, and you can't help but go, mm, this just isn't the same. I, I really, right. I got to be there. You know, it's just not the same. If you can see through the screen to what's happening, that's exactly right. You see through it. That's, again, the difference. The left hemisphere generally tends to see to the screen. So it'll go, 
oh, let's watch that because so-and-so is preaching. In a pre-enlightenment church, you see through that to the experience and you go, well, here's what's lost. It'd be like, I live in New York and my wife lives in California and we talk about wedded bliss. Well, we do see one another, but we would see through the screen for the ache of, we can't touch. Now, to their credit, churches that have blossomed in the Enlightenment say, that's right, touch. It's sitting near people. Oh, well, well, now we have the six-foot rule. But that will be passed one day. And so for, the, for, that, for these kind of churches, the touch is being together. And that has immense value, no doubt. But the ancients didn't assign ineffable to that. They assigned it to God and eternity. This is why the writer John, who also peered into eternity, my joke is he sounds like a millennial, because uh, his most commonly used word in the book of Revelation is like, you know, you know like, you know, like, uh, it's, it's like. <laughs> and, uh, and we're always cautious here because we don't know how exactly how eternity unfolds other than we will bump into John one day. And you just don't want John going, uh, can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want that to be your experience in heaven. <laughs> so he's not a millennial. And our apologies to millennials. We know, we know a handful of really fine millennials. <laughs> <laughs> This is my people, Mike. This is my people. That's right. Which ain't bad out of plus 80 million, but there's, you know, there's a handful of good ones. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's like, why, why like, why the word like? Cause you can't, you can't explain it explicitly. You can only, yeah, the closest right. thing to explaining it is to say it's like something else to use yeah. analogy. Yep. It's inexpressible. It doesn't mean that we cannot know at all. That's not the point. It means that we see how short the language falls. And I'll give you one more. Well, uh, here's another way to put it. And the reason why the faith used to be bodily, which did include, of course, the brain, but it started in the body is nuptial union and sexual consummation were, and orgasm are always considered to be experiences of the ineffable. And that's exactly how we've experienced them. You can't adequately describe what that is like. Hmm. And, and this is again, what enlightenment churches don't understand, the more you try to parse it out, what happens to the wonder and mystery, Pat? It goes away. That's right. You wring it right out of it. You imagine talking to your wife and say, well, look, first of all, it's chemicals. And so they describe the chemical. Let me give you the chemical composition. Of, <laughs> 
I mean, you just see her nostrils flaring. Of just, oh my gosh, <laughs> I want you so much. <laughs> oh gosh. That's what exiles tell me they often feel when they hear a sermon. We wring the mystery out of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's going through the back of my mind constantly right now is, uh, you know, okay, so, so what? So what do we do? What do we do? You know, it's, it's that classic. And uh, I think I've, I've uh, pondered enough to realize you mentioned it earlier and, and we even talked about it last week. But lament. You know, I think that's the important piece that's next. If, if someone hears this, and is thinking, yeah, I get it. I see it. I want to, I want to change it. What do we do? And uh, I'm curious if you think that's the, the correct recommendation, but I would, I would say lament, let, let it sink in, let your heart lament for a good yeah. while before you, you try to do anything. Uh, in, in, I'm reminded of, uh, in Jeremiah, I was reading this, this with a friend and remember noting how God is punishing Israel and at one point is, is essentially saying, just stop, just stop and accept the punishment. Just, just accept it. And not saying this is a punishment. It's not translatable in that, in that regard. But I think the lament is important to sit and, and embrace that this is where we're at and like, let your heart break because that embodies the Lord more than taking action right now. What do you think? Exactly. No, it's exactly. You're, um, we're echoing many of the sentiments of Dallas Willard in his fine, fine, excellent book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Because uh, the question is not, what do we do? The question is, who should we become? Mm -hmm. And so Willard talks a lot about the, uh, the failure of the WWJD, was it? What would Jesus do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, Jesus didn't go around asking himself all the time, what should I do? <laughs> and um, that goes back to the, uh, the thrust of Psalm 37.4. As again, we'll quote Augustine's, you know, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Augustine said, love God and do what you want to do. Love God and do what you want to do. Because you're going to in the end. And so the question is not what do we do? Because this is the doubling down of the mistake is typically, and Americans are more given to this, is uh, they'll get their toes wet in some of this we're talking about. And the immediate thing is, okay, what do we do? Let's plant a church. Let's do, let's do this. Let's, let's just, that's just called immediatism. It's one of the banes of the Western church. We had to immediately do something, fired up, and, um, <clears throat> but we're still the same people that we were that created the problem. Mm. So guess what will happen? <laughs> We're going to create another one. <laughs> We're going to create another one. We're the because, same one, I realize. Yes, we'll create a problem in this regard. I'm glad we talked about this. Is <laughs> the people who are perceptive, who are actually hungry, have a splinter in their mind, will see through us as a fraud. They'll smell. They won't be able to give words to it, but they'll smell 
this is not genuine. This is not who this person is. It's something they started because they read an article about, oh, there's religious nuns out there. Let's do this. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, we'll do things that we would resent other people doing. So say if you went to a to hear a lecture because you thought it was going to actually be you know, pretty interesting. And then, uh, but they sort of pull the curtain down with Wizard of Oz style and say, we're glad you're here. And listen, here's the real deal. We are pagans and we're really trying to convert you to paganism. That's what we're trying to do here tonight. So we're glad you came, but we have an ulterior motive. Now, if you're a Christian, you go, it's cheesy. <laughs> but that's what we do. We, we So we'll start something that, oh, that would be cool. Oh, really? They used incense in the old, in older traditions? Let's start using some incense. <laughs> and again, and I think it's fair to say, and again, if you're a listener and you don't like this, there's a little button over there you can you can just push and this whole thing stops. It goes away. It's the wonder of Zoom and the wonder of podcasts. Is if you go back to the the main portal into the mystery of the gospel is the mystery of marriage, is in the same way you don't have a very healthy marriage if you read something and go, Oh, that's a technique that enhances our, our marriage. Let's I'm gonna use it. You're going to use it? Hmm. Why don't you become it? Hmm. Oh, so if asking questions, I'm going to start asking questions. Uh, what kind of questions? Well, there you go. If you're not someone who's inquisitive, the last thing your spouse is, your spouse is going to see through or go, Okay, you done that little exercise? Right. Yeah, are you Feel done better? with your questions? Yeah. You done with your questions? Nice job, Biff. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, that is true. Back to the Future. First one. He doesn't know what to say to her, so he has to write it out and come up to her. And he takes, you are my density. <laughs> Michael Fox going, it was destiny. It was like destiny. <laughs> I'm your density. So good. So that's the first is ineffable. And then by the way, I, you just, we just have to recognize this. there's some great books out there, but one that really did uh, impact me, uh, it's called Ugliest Sin. Uh, it was given to me by an architect uh, friend. Um, many years ago, and a whole series of books, but it's basically how the Western Church, evangelical particularly, gave little credence to architecture, and how that enhances the ineffable. And so, the clever title of one is: is you know, most churches, if you if you really understand the ineffable, churches these churches are ugly as sin. And uh, I felt it the first time. Uh, when Kathy and I were in uh, Geneva, so we decided uh, to uh, visit uh, Calvin's chapel. By the way, this is a funny story. We were in we we're in Geneva, and we so we finally go to this uh, tourist kiosk or tourist center and say, "Hey, give us a map. We want to do. We want to see uh, 
Calvin Chapel, and she goes, oh, and she goes, yes, Voltaire, and the rest, and she gives us the Enlightenment tour map. <laughs> we had to go back and say, no, we said Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you something about post-Christian Europe. And, uh, but when we went in, now uh, we had previously been in the, the uh, cathedral at Chichester, Salisbury. Uh, we've been to St. Patrick's the Divine, um, the National Cathedral. And we walked into Calvin's Chapel and you just felt uh, cold and dead. Now, Calvin was a fine man. Uh, this isn't pick on Calvin morning. It has slate gray walls. The pulpit is ascended. No art. Minimalist. It didn't evoke any of the sense of the ineffable of God. It evokes more of a lecture hall. Hmm. And that's exactly what has happened in much of of uh, Western Christianity. And that's what The Economist is getting at. Now, I granted, a lot of churches will say, well, we can't afford that. To which I would say, that's thinking really inside the box. There are things that can be done. Uh, and uh, I wish I had it right in front of me, but a stick-built chapel in Arkansas some 25 years ago won the award for one of the most soaring in terms of what it does to your senses, small, affordable, beautiful. And so the argument that, um, but, the, but most the modern ones, and then when they do particularly well, they do become theater. And theater is where we get our word to spectate, spectators, and then you put the pastor or the preacher on the big screen and all that can be framed inside your iPad, your phone, your laptop. And that's why the economist's first point is the ineffable is lost. But it gets even wilder. Go ahead before we switch. I was going to say, you know, what comes to mind is, is the, uh, where retail is chasing, which is the experience. And it's almost like churches are going through the, the the same phase that retail went even before COVID. You know, like bi- business, I think, gets this. It's it's obviously not for the faith, but they get the idea of we, the, the, trying to shift retail to be this experience, and and people are are more drawn to experiences. And I, I'm just I'm just hearing that resonate. Like even even they. Are, uh, completely secular, not of the faith, are grasping this thing of there's something lost on this physical space if it doesn't have this experience behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and what can we do? So it's it's uh, it's wild. It's almost like, yeah, the church is is just catching up to that in, in the in the lack of understanding and seeing it fall short. Yeah, it's a good. It's a really good point. Um, I mean, I've read a slew of these books on the experience economy, and it certainly uh, COVID is. Uh, really crash the party. Yeah. Um, and, but it, yeah, so it, good point. Again, I, what I come back to is more, more often than not, what they're trying to, in, in, with the best of intentions, most churches are trying to 
respond to COVID or compensate in some way to quote keep us together or to get together, right. which again again has tremendous value, uh, but it's not ineffable. Yeah, and that's what's lost. I had I had one other question from what you said earlier. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, this the, the the using the skills thinking about marriage and and we were joking on the guy who just asked questions um what is the difference between someone who is asking questions to become inquisitive and someone who's simply using the tool to to ask questions because they you know they they knew they were supposed to like what what's the difference between those two individuals in their pursuit Mm -hmm. yeah that's good I would, you know, I'd say, for example, if you're not good at asking questions, you treat it as a spiritual discipline, the discipline, and therefore you make an agreement with uh, your spouse or what have you. I'm going into training. I'm trying to become someone. So would you give me the grace to become this person? Because I'm going to flub flop and, but, uh, bec- but, but you've got to couple this with, in my opinion, I don't, then there's really no other way to say it is um, the mystery of the gospel that gives you an insatiable curiosity. If you don't have an insatiable curiosity, this is like working out for uh, the Olympics you never plan to go to. Uh, you, you, you're just going to, you're not going to stick with it. And um, where there is reams of evidence that online does not foster curiosity. It just doesn't. Yeah. It supplies too quick, cheap an answer. That's actually, that's a good answer. Uh, I was thinking, I've actually had conversations with guys encouraging them to use that skill, but I've cautioned them to make sure, to, to self-check that they're genuinely asking with the intent of getting to know their wives and understand them more deeply, not just to ask 20 questions, but the, the goal, right. you have to keep the goal in mind. And I think that, yeah, you're right. That, that curiosity is, is part of the key there. That's right. Curiosity might kill the cat, but it'll save a marriage. It will, uh, <laughs> it will also, this is what you mean by ineffable. If it's, if, if he is indescribable and, and if he's, um, then just if you start with the, basic assumption he is god is infinite father son spirit and i'm finite yet he is in some way knowable i'm curious whoa and i'll never reach the end of it in this life whoa and i get um again put in the marital context any healthy marriage those couples want each other's body they desire it and then any healthy Christian, you desire his body. You are drawn to his body. To him, not only to his body, who is the church, but to him as he is drawn to us as his body, so on and so forth. It, the marital gospel gives a far wider accounting for the way we're made to, to live and who we become. And, um, yeah, so, uh, I've found that the, 
this little pilot group we have going, quite a number of people, we've started them reading Out of the Silent Planet. And I was with one of the young men who's in this group. And he said, uh, you know, I started it and, uh, you know, I'd agree with my wife, we're going to read it together, but I just got so caught up in it. I, got, I finished it way before her. <laughs> so we're kind of working through that. <laughs> that was curiosity that was being aroused in him. Like, oh my gosh, I've never imagined it this way. That's curiosity. That will foster questions and so what disciplines do is they discipline imagination. So you ask better questions, but they don't create a curious mind. The discipline has to be coupled with, I think, imaginative literature. Uh, one of the best ways to do it, or, or, or actually to see through film, good film, just see through it. Uh, and I just find the older I get, I still keep coming back to the Matrix, and sometimes people roll their eyes and uh, you, you know, you know, Matrix freak. The matrix again, Mike. <laughs> Here we go again. And uh, it's because it's it's just you just watch it over and you over and you go, man. Hey, yeah. yeah, look right. Oh, did you see that? Right? Did you see that? That's. It's just like when my daughter the other morning and she read in. Romans and the the unfathomable mystery of God, and uh, I said, "Read that again." Did anybody catch that? And she read it again, and the third time she read it again, no one had noticed it. Mm. No one had noticed it. Oh yeah, it's Romans. It's all about you know the justification by faith and blah 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 blah. And uh, so you have to. This is the power of the lectio divina which is you read and ponder, you know, study it and parse it, read it again, read it again, pour a little more water on it, let it sink in to someone finally goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, look at that word. Well, the word's always been there, you just didn't see it. Mm. This yeah. is what's lost. Yeah, that makes sense. I What came to mind for me too, in addition to imaginative lit literature is uh, filling the imagination by actually had, it's, it's almost that mentor piece we talked about before. If you have mentors that have walked the path, uh, you know, many times as I was asking questions and practicing that and trying to become more inquisitive, I was thinking, Oh gosh, this is something Mike is so good at. You know, I, I want to, I want to become as good at, the, at this as he is. Cause it's been so powerful for me in our conversations, you know, but like, that's the that's the imagination in my my mind of of wanting to see that you know I've I've seen it I've ex, I've experienced the receiving end of it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It it does. And thank you. Uh, you know, and that I owe it to my mentors. Uh, and again, mentoring was lost with the Enlightenment because you just needed mm -hmm. God, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible, and you can figure all this out on your own. Um, or teach something you've never done. Or teach something you've never done. Principle to a different yep. scenario. Yep. In fact, Ian McGilchrist has a great little uh, interview with someone, I can't remember, but he just, he nailed it. He said, uh, in a left brain world, it's like, you want to discover Jane Austen. And so someone sits down and says, gives you six bullet points on Jane Austen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. In the same way, here's six bullet points on uh, out of the silent planet. Ready? Write them down. Here we go. 
And uh, so the ineffable is lost. And this was just a common coinage of the church worldwide before the enlightenment. And hence, the careful consideration of the of what was said in worship, what was sung. You know, as Flannery O'Connor said, the great heresy, when she died in 63, so think about this, but she saw it was coming. The great heresy, she said, was everything had to be upbeat. Upbeat, positive, over the top. And I said to a friend the other day, save your superlatives for what's really superlative. After listening to him say incredible and awesome like 16 times for everything that's happening. And uh, God is awesome. God is incredible. He's ineffable. Most of what I've done in my life isn't. This ministry that I'm doing isn't. The jury's out. We don't hear much of that anymore. And uh, so what you do is you create professional cynics. The architecture would lend itself as it did when we first went into the uh, cathedral at Salisbury, which was funny to see outside on the lawn. <laughs> we weren't prepared for this. There was this couple making out pretty passionately over near Bush. And we go, well, welcome to England. <laughs> and... Uh, but you walked inside and everyone's posture and language was reverential. Pagan, nuns, Christians, doesn't matter. What happened? Mm. Yeah, well, you know what happened. Mm. Um, I don't think I've ever been in a cathedral and someone goes, yeah, there's the man up there, the man upstairs. Before we run out of time, the other thing that the uh, economist says, which is, I think, is pretty... So first of all, God doesn't work well on Zoom. The ineffable is lost. I agree. Good Babylonian theology there. Second, transubstantiation is widely agreed is not possible over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the essence of humor in part, or tongue-in-cheek or irony, is economy of language. Bang! Transubstantiation, it is widely agreed, is not possible over the internet. Why? They're exactly right, by the way. It could be consubstantiation. Ooh, these words. All of them basically mean the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine is not possible over the internet. Why? You know why? Uh, not, not well enough to put in the words here. <laughs> <laughs> It takes a real bodily person ordained by God who lays his hands, her hands, I don't care, and is used by God, a human agency, for the transformation of that into the real presence. And I grant you there is real, the real presence of Christ. Now, I grant you there is a continuum here. There's a range. So there are those traditions. This is the very real. It is mystically, is it, it, regardless of how it appears, 
there are those who say it's con with substan the substance is con with so the substance of the bread and wine, although not altered, also is commingled with the very real presence of Christ. But this happens through the agency of touch, human touch. So the economist points out that the churches that are doing well online are the ones who buy these prefab cups and little wafers attached to the bottom. Or the ones who says, try this at home. Take a little wine, take a little bread. In other words, anybody could do this. And whatever's left over, throw it away. pre-enlightenment church traditions would be horrified. There's just no other way to say it, Pat. One of our friends when we lived in England in 1986 was Phil Cheeseman. We, li we lived in his house. Phil was an old Brit, but a wonderful man. He loved to say, horrors, horrors. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless him. I mean, he, uh, he's right. And he would just say, you don't take Jesus' body and blood and throw whatever's left over in the trash. Yeah, and I'm sure, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what our audience is, but I do know most that I'm connected to would would probably hear that and go, yeah, but Mike, come on, it's not his actual body. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and I'm not going to try to... Uh, you exactly, know, that's... yeah. I think, I think that's the piece that what it highlights by by immediately falling to that as the conclusion it highlights the lack of the ineffable because there's yes. yeah that it's almost like case in point there you go so you got to ask yourself why did the view that he is only symbolically present not actually present why does it coincide with the enlightenment is there a causal connection I think so because in the those who bias the left hemisphere we go well that's that's irrational that's um, that, there's no way actual bread becomes actual flesh First, then you have the difficulty of having to dance around or soft around off the edges on Jesus saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Oh, I mean, I mean, that's like he's saying he's the door. He's not really the door. <laughs> okay. I mean, every system is logically coherent inside that system. But if you start with the assumption of that ain't possible, but if you start with the assumption it is, so this Sunday, it's past Sunday, I was, um, so I, I, again, I just watched, and as um, the two priests, the leftover bread, they go up to the altar and they eat all of it. There's nothing left over, not even a crumb. And they have uh, a special um, it's not a broom, but it's it's a little white, 
cardboard almost, but it's a fabric and it sweeps up the crumbs and they put that on the plate and they eat all that. And then they drink all the cup and they carefully, in some traditions, I was an altar boy growing up, so I know this firsthand, uh, pour a little wine and water through the fingers and that is again swirled around the cup and that is all consumed. And then the cup is wiped out carefully. If there's more than can be, that is put in a special box that is administered if people say I would like to have the Eucharist one more time before I pass for example or I'm in a hospital or so on and so forth um, but it's not possible over the internet yeah. this is lost on a lot of my friends too they would go huh and I sit there and smile and go dead gummit that's good Babylonian theology now, why do I say Babylonian theology? Because uh, that's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to Lewis's point that he said, you know, Lewis said, of course I'm a Christian. He said, I couldn't believe in a religion where I, Christianity is entirely right and, the, and 99, all the other 99 religions in the world are entirely wrong. Everyone's made in the image of God, so every faith gets something right. Mm. As he points out, Christianity is not just the fulfillment of Judaism, but it's the fulfillment of every religion because everyone is made in the image of God and they get something right. And I think this is why the sons of Judah in the Babylonian exile spend the first three years learning the language and literature of Babylon. I think they read some of this stuff and go, dang God, that's right. That's exactly right. And so I think the um, economists would be proud to say it's a good Babylonian literature. And you read this article and they go, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I just don't think most of my friends will ever read this. And second, they won't understand why it's right. Mm. And that's why... The vast majority of the Judeans in Babylon just went about their business, had families. They did the two things that God told them to do. But they didn't see through Babylonian society to what it got right. The sons of Judah did. And God used them in, in fascinating ways. In the lectionary readings right now, we're going through Daniel. Then you watch in successive administrations, the sons of Judah keep getting called in to help them solve a problem. They didn't call in the rest of the Judeans. They used them as slaves. I think most of us are slaves to a technological society. I know some of you are thinking, he's going to mention the Matrix again. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs>